But mind taking the word of God, please, with me this morning and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Philippians, chapter 1. We'll begin reading with the first verse. The Bible says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Seek the Lord's face in a word of prayer. Father, we ask Thee now, Lord, that Thou wouldst take the word of God and that You, by the Spirit, Lord, quicken hearts, apply the word, Lord, as the great physician in the way that you know each one of your children needs. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. Amen. Well, we are in verses 3 through 8 of the book of Philippians this morning, the thanksgiving section of Paul's introduction to the epistle. And we noted a number of Lord's Days ago when we did our introductory message on the book of Philippians, that the introduction is verses 1 through 11. We've been considering the reasons why Paul has been able to pray for and remember the church at Philippi with joy. With joy. And we asked the question, how did Paul have such joy in his heart as he prayed for and remembered this church at Philippi, even though they had some issues, not nearly as many as other churches that we read about in the New Testament, but they still had their issues as well. And we saw in verses 3 through 8, five sources of joy. We saw that it was thankfulness for the church, which we found in verse 3. Two, praying for the church in verse 4. Three, working with the church in verse 5. And four, confidence in God's work in the church, which we looked at in verse 6 last week. And today, Lord willing, we'll look at the last of these five sources of joy, which is affection for the church. Affection for the church. 
We find this taught in verses 7 through 8. In these two verses, we find Paul describing the affection that he had for the church at Philippi. He says this, Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. You hear that, that sense of deep affection in that phrase. Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of my grace. That's a statement describing the closeness with which they work together and the environment in which this affection grew. And then he says in verse 8, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. You just don't get any statement that is comparable to the depth of the affection that Paul describes there in the bowels of Jesus Christ. But I want you to note that not only in these two verses, but the whole book of Philippians is full of affection. I'm reminded in Philippians 4 and verse 1, Paul refers to the church in this way, my dearly beloved, and longed for my joy, my crown. Can you imagine somebody saying that of a church, a pastor, a preacher? You're my dearly beloved, you're my longed for, you're my joy, and you're my crown. Deep affection. In chapter 2, verses 24 through 30, we read about the sacrifice of Epaphroditus. We noted a while back that Epaphroditus was the messenger sent from Philippi with a gift. And he traveled a very, very, very long distance all the way from, from um, Philippi to Rome. And we noted that, that that distance, I believe it was from comparable to Chicago to New York. And you can imagine they didn't have cars back then or planes this was love with shoes on. I mean, he put his love to action and he went to Philippi. And we read in verse 30 of chapter 2 that for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death. I mean, he loved Paul so much so that even he even worked for Paul. He even labored for Paul's well-being even though it brought him nigh unto death. And then you see this affection further as in, in verse 26, he reveals that he was sad. Epaphroditus is sad. Well, why are you sad, Epaphroditus? Because you're feeling so sick? No, no, no. He says this, For he longed after you all, Philippians, and was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. Isn't that amazing? Epaphroditus is sad because the Philippians are sad that they heard that he was sick. What amazing affection existed in this church at Philippi. Between Paul and the Philippians, this whole book is, you can, you can just feel the affection oozing out of the book of Philippians. And I want you to, I want you to know that there's, there's no coincidence here that the book of Philippians is a book of joy and it's also a book of affection. You see, affection or love and joy always are found together. Love is the twin sister of joy. Where you find joy, you'll find love. Where you find love, you'll find joy. You find affection, you'll find joy. We know this to be the case because in Galatians 5 and verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit 
that list begins with this, love, joy. Well, fruit there is singular. One fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit produces these things. When the Spirit produces love, there will be intermingled in that love, joy. And vice versa, with joy, love. We find this taught in an amazing verse in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord describes His love for His people. And He says this, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in His love. He will joy over thee with singing. That's an incredible statement. God Almighty says, I rejoice over my people with joy and sing over them. And I rest in my love for them. And you see there that the love of God for us was also found with the joy of God for us. Joy and love are found together. And as we noted at other times, we often, as Christians and as churches, lack joy. We lack joy. We lack joy with regards to the church. And perhaps one reason for that is we may, we may lack affection for one another. We may lack this sweet, heartfelt affection, this love for one another. You know, only the Holy Spirit of God knows. But could it be this morning, any of you, could it be, whether it's in marriage, could it be that there's a lack of joy in marriage because there's a lack of love, there's a lack of affection between a husband and a wife? That's a part of a church as well. Could it be that brothers and sisters in a church lack joy because they lack real love for one another, lack affection for one another? Only the Lord knows, but could that be a reason why there is a lack of joy in any of your souls? Because affection produces joy. Affection produces joy. And I want you to consider with me this morning affection for the church. This is the fifth source of, of joy with regards to the church. So let's begin with looking at verse 7. Paul writes, Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all. Now the word meet, the word translated meet, is the word right or just. The word for what is appropriate, even more, stronger than appropriate, morally obligatory. Paul is saying this, even as it is right, just, I am morally obliged to think this of you all. Think, the word think here is used a number of times in the book of Philippians. And it refers to an attitude or a mindset. To have this mind, this mind of Christ, to think this way. Now what is this mindset the Apostle Paul was morally obligated to have towards the Philippians? It was this. What we said in verse 6 last week. Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform unto the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying this. I am morally obligated... To be confident that God has begun a good work in you. And he's going to describe what he means by this as he goes on. It was only right for Paul to think this of them. Now this is a very interesting thing. Because what this tells us is that Paul is not exaggerating when he says, I'm confident God's begun a good work in you. No, no. He's not exaggerating. He's not speaking with 
hyperbole or wishful thinking. He's saying, I am obligated for some reason, which we'll look at. I'm obligated to think this of you all. This is not flattery, and he doesn't want to pat, pat on the back for this. And this tells us something very important. We not only have the right to be confident in a brother or sister's salvation, but in some cases, we are obligated to. We are obligated to be confident. Because Paul says, it is meat for me. It is right, it is just for me. It's only right, Paul says, for me to do anything else would just be flat out wrong. It's only right for me to believe this of you. So then we ask the question, well, what was it that obligated him? What made it meet for the Apostle Paul to think this of them? And then he says this, because I have you in my heart. Because I have you in my heart. And of course, this is speaking of this love, this affection that he has for the church at Philippi, which he further describes in verse 8. Now, at first glance, this might seem like a strange reason for obligating the Apostle Paul to have confidence in their salvation. Are you saying, Paul, that just because you have a feeling for them, just because you love them, that that obligates you to believe that they are saved? I mean, that would be totally subjective. That would just be feeling-based. I feel this way, so then it must be that way. That doesn't sound like the Apostle Paul. Well, we have to go a little bit deeper and understand what he means when he says, I have you in my heart, to understand the strength with which he is obligated to have confidence in them. And the first thing I want us to see in verses 7 through 8 is the nature of this affection. We need to understand what this affection is. Now, well, first he says he has them in his heart. In his heart. Well, what is the heart? The heart is the seat of the emotions and the will. This speaks of the fact that the Apostle Paul loved them in sincerity. He didn't just love them with his mouth. He didn't just love them with his, with his actions. But then in his heart, he harbored bitterness towards them and frustration with them. He had them in his heart. He had them in his heart. His emotions were moved for them. His will was set for their good. And because he had them in his heart, this is why he prayed for them. This is why he spoke of them. Because he had them in his heart. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 18, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart. So when Paul spoke, he spoke out of the fullness of what he knew in his heart. And he's saying, listen, I want you to know, Philippians, you're in my heart. I carry you with me when I go. I think about you. When, I, when I'm traveling, I'm thinking about you. When I have a moment, I'm praying for you. When I kneel down to pray, it just comes to my mind. I just think about you because you're in my heart. Because I love you. You're, you're, you're in the deepest part of, of who I am. I can't separate myself from you. You're in my heart. I have you in my heart. And you can tell, brothers and sisters, how much we can tell how much we love our brothers or our sisters, but how much we pray for them, how much we think of them. Do we have them in our heart? Do we carry their burdens with us? 
Do we think of him often? That's how the Apostle Paul felt for the Philippians. I have you in my heart. Then the second thing is Paul says in verse 8, we're going to skip down and come back to verse 7. Paul says that he had a great longing for them. Now before he makes this statement, he calls upon God to be his witness. And let me tell you something. When, when the Apostle Paul does this, when the, scripture, the writers in Scripture do this, they're about to say something pretty, pretty incredible. I don't think any of us could come up with a statement that is more, that is deeper than this statement that Paul makes. I have great longing for you in the bowels of Jesus. And that's why he calls on God as his witness. He's saying, for God is my witness. He does this in Romans 1 verse 9, 9 chapter 9 verse 1. He does this in Galatians. He does it in 1 Thessalonians. And the entire statement of Paul's affection is so staggering that he says, God is my witness. The God who searches the heart, He is my witness. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. And Paul was so sincere in his love, he said, Lord, you be my witness. Just think about that for us. How many things do we say? How many things can we say? God, you be my witness. The God who knows every part of my heart knows that this is true in me. I'm not fabricating this. This isn't a show. This is true of me. I know it in the depth of my soul. God, you be my witness. How many things do we say with our lips? But we know it's not really true in our hearts. And we could never call on God as our witness. But Paul knew, not perfectly, but he knew, I, this, is, this is real in me. I love them. This is, this is real. I'm not just saying this. God is my witness. And then he says this, I have a great longing. I have a great longing. He says the same thing in chapter 4 and verse 1. My brethren, dearly beloved and longed for. Longed for. What a word. What a word to describe the Apostle Paul's affection for the Philippians. Longed for. This is the word that means intense yearning. He's saying, I have intense yearning. I have a, a love for you. I long for you. Now what is he longing for? Well, no doubt the Apostle Paul would have longed for their fellowship, for their presence. He wanted to be with them. But I think there's something deeper here, something more. He longed for their spiritual growth. Which is why he prays in verses 9 through 11. He prays that love would abound. He prays that you'd approve things that are excellent. He prays that they'd be filled with the fruits of righteousness. This is his, this is his longing for them. And this is why it, it flows out of him in prayer. He longs for their spiritual growth. And this is reminiscent of Galatians 4 and verse 19 where Paul says, My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's the true heart of a minister. The heart of any elder worth his salt. Is a man who, who says, I'm longing. I'm longing 
that Christ would be formed in them. That's the heart of a, of a true elder, a true shepherd. I travail. He goes into his, his closet and he shuts the door and he gets on his face and he cries out, Oh God, that you would form Christ in them, in these sheep. Oh, that you'd make them like Jesus. Oh, that you'd use your word to form Christ in them. I'm longing for it. My heart's breaking for it. This is my desire. This is my desire. That's the heart of a true minister. If you'll read some of the stories of some of the ministers in the past, you'll find some amazing men get up early, early in the morning, four in the morning. I think of Rutherford getting up early, four in the morning. I think of one story I heard about a Scottish minister who would get up in the middle of the night and wrap, wrap a, a blanket around him, shivering in the cold, traveling in prayer that Christ would be formed in the people that he was an overseer for, longing for them to be, to be made in the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the heart. That's the heart of an elder. That's the heart of any brother or sister too. Do you long for your brother and sister to be formed into Jesus' image? You burden for it? Oh, that God would give us a burden for that like the Apostle Paul, like Jesus, who intercedes for us, the throne of God, pleading with God. Oh, Lord. He's pleading with the Father. Oh, Father. Oh, Father. That they may be like me. And he answers that. This is the kind of affection that Paul had for the Philippians. But then thirdly, he had affection for them in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And here he expresses the depth of this affection. This is just something that outstrips the ability of any human being really to define with human language. He longs for them in the bowels of Jesus Christ. The word translated bowels here, it does mean bowels, the Greek word. It is literally bowels. But throughout the New Testament, this word is used figuratively. It's only used one time literally in the book of Acts for bowels, literal bowels. It's used figuratively. And their figurative usage speaks of the tender mercies of someone who is feeling deep sympathy or compassion or pity. You think about the feeling that you might have when you see somebody in need. The pit of your stomach tightens up. You feel it in your bowels. You feel it in your, in your, in, in your stomach. I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever seen something that has deeply moved you whether it was to, to weep over something sorrowful or something moved you out of deep love in your soul, you felt your stomach tighten up and you felt it in your bowels. And this was the most intense, the strongest Greek word for compassionate love. 2 Corinthians 7.15, Paul wrote, and his inward affection is more abundant to you. The words inward affection, that's the word bowels. Translated their affection. And so this word bowels means this deep moving of love, of pity, of sympathy. And the incredible thing here is, is that Paul says, listen, I long for you in the bowels of who? Of Jesus Christ. 
in the bowels of Jesus. Oh, what a statement. How amazing is that? With the same pity, with the same sympathy, with the same affection that Jesus Christ has for His people. I know something of that. He didn't know it to the same degree, but He knew the same kind of love. He knew that love. And where do we begin to describe that kind of love, that intense longing of Christ? I mean, how can you begin to to, to describe the sympathy, the pity, the love of Jesus for His people? We read in Zephaniah that that the Lord sings over His people, rejoices over them. He calls Him in His word, Hephzibah, in whom is all my delight. He calls Him the apple of His eye. The Father parted with His own Son. How deeply He loved them. For God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the Son so deeply loved us. He was willing to lay aside all the riches of glory. He was willing to part with the environment of His glory in heaven. He was willing to exchange the praises of the angels for the blasphemies of men that He might have us as His treasure. John 11.35, we find the Lord Jesus weeping at the death of Lazarus. You know, the sympathy of Jesus was so much that it actually broke out into tears, into weeping. Octavius Winslow wrote this, commenting on John 11.35, Is there a more consolatory, soothing view of Christ's love than this? It's a compassionate, sympathizing, weeping love. The sympathy of Jesus never wearies nor slumbers. It never chills or forgets. It entwines with our every cross, attaches to our every burden, and frosts with sparkling light each darkling cloud. It is not the vapid sentiment of fiction, nor the morbid sympathy of romance. It is a divine human reality. It is the sympathetic love of the incarnate God. This is the tender mercy that Paul knew for the Philippians. And brother or sister, no matter what you're going through, what you have gone through, Christ intimately feels that in His bowels. He is moved with your infirmity. If He wept at Lazarus' death, you can be certain You can be certain that as a man, he would weep with you. He would weep with you. Struggling at home with different situations, with your children perhaps, with work or whatever, Christ Christ feels it intimately. See, you're you're the hands and the feet of the body of which he's the head. And he feels when his body hurts. He feels it. He knows it intimately. It moves him. Jesus Christ wants you to know. You you might think think he's far off and I'm going through this hard time and he's not near me. Oh no, he feels it. He's moved 
He's sympathetic. He loves you. Oh, how he loves you. Just look at his blood and his agony. Oh, how he loves you. The incredible thing is, is that Paul says that I know something of this for you, Philippians. How in the world did he know that? Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. See, Christ lived in Paul. It wasn't Paul's love. No, it was Christ's love in Paul. I can't love another believer that way. I can't know something of the, of the amazing long-suffering and, and, and tenderness and the mercy and the pity and the sympathy of the love of Jesus. I can't. Not in me. I don't have that in me. There's nothing in me that has that. But Christ lives in me. And Christ lives in you. The Spirit of God lives in you. And He loves them. He loves that brother or sister that you find it hard to. Christ does. Oh, that Christ would have more of us. That the life of Christ and the soul of man would be more evident, would rule and reign more in us that we might be enabled to love people. To love them with that kind of love. It's amazing. Jesus can change you. That's the truth. The Spirit of God lives in you. He can change you. You've got bitterness in your soul towards a brother. Christ can change you. You say, I just don't feel the depth of that love. Christ can change you because He lives in you and He enables you by the power of the Spirit to obey the Word and to deepen your love. This was a love that was produced only by the power and the indwelling Holy Spirit. So we see in all this that Paul's affection for the Philippians, Paul's affection, this was not any love, was it? Just any love. This was the love that's produced by the Holy Spirit for believers. And that's why Paul says, it's meat for me. It's only right for me. Because the love Paul had in his soul for the Philippians, he knew, was only produced by the Holy Spirit for believers. And by the way, that's an evidence of the work of grace. Do you know that any, at any length, any degree, love in your soul for believers? If you don't, it's an evidence you don't know Christ. And if you do, it's an evidence you do. So Paul says, this kind of affection is spirit wrought, and therefore it is meet for me to think this of you all. But the second thing I want you to see, and the last thing, is the growth of this affection. Now we understand something of what kind of affection Paul had for the Philippians, but no doubt this affection wasn't this strong in the beginning as it was now. Remember he said in verse 5, from, from, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. It's taken a, a long time for the depth of this affection to grow. Paul has grown into the depth of this affection. It's taken some time and, and no doubt it wasn't as strong back then as it perhaps was now. And then this brings us back to the first part of verse 7 where Paul says that he was obligated to believe that they were saved. And I want you to see this. This is very interesting. Paul's love for them, his affection for them, grew in the environment of their following Christ with him. 
which is why he says, inasmuch as both in my bonds, in the defense, in the confirmation of the gospel, you're partakers of my grace. He's saying, you've been with me in my bonds, you've been with me in the defense, in the confirmation of the gospel. And as we work together and fellowship together in those three things, I saw evidence of that work begun in you and my love grew. So it's connected. So when Paul says, I have you in my heart and that makes it only right for me to believe that you are saved, he's connecting that idea with the fact that he has seen evidences in them. And through those evidences, working with them, his affection has grown. And Paul describes these as his grace, my grace. He says, partakers of my grace. Now, grace here could refer to saving grace, but it could also refer to Paul's ministry. And perhaps it's the idea of both being thought of there. His saving grace that called him to be an apostle that put him in the ministry. But I think that the, the great emphasis here is on the ministry. And in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 10, Paul refers to the ministry as grace. According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. So he refers to his ministry as the grace given unto me. In Galatians 2 and verse 9, he says, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me. What grace? That we should go unto the heathen. So I think that we can safely say that Paul does speak in the New Testament of his ministry as an apostle as a grace. And in the context here, it seems that that would be the best way to understand Paul's phrase, partakers of my grace, because he speaks of the bonds and defense and confirmation of the gospel. So he says, you have been partakers of my grace. And it's an amazing thing, really, that the ministry is called a grace. And it certainly is a grace. There are three areas in which this love, affection, grew in the Philippians' fellowship with Paul. Bonds and defense of the gospel and confirmation of the gospel. The first is his bonds. Paul says, in my bonds. This word bonds is also used in verse 13. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. And verse 14. And many of the brethren of the Lord waxing confident by my bonds. Now this word bonds refers to what we know as a chain. A chain. Most likely, Paul would have been chained to a Roman officer um, during this imprisonment. Um, we, we think that this is the case because in verse 13, he speaks about the palace, which was the Roman praetorium, the praetorium guard, which would have held him under house arrest, which brings our minds back to Acts chapter 28, when he is in house arrest there. And it seems that the praetorium guard would have kept Paul under house arrest and which would have been typically so, chained him to one of the soldiers. So he refers to his bonds, meaning his chains. But certainly this reference to bonds is not only the physical chain itself, but all of the difficulties and all of the sufferings that he encountered in prison. My chains... How are they partakers with him in his bonds? 
Well, Philippians 1 verse 29 says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, speaking to the Philippians, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. It seems that the Philippians also suffered. They suffered too. They knew something of suffering. Let me tell you, there aren't many things that will make the affection of believers grow like suffering together. Like suffering together. One time I saw a book entitled Grace Grows Best in Winter. And the flower of affection, of love for brothers and sisters, grows best in suffering. And you know what's amazing? Paul calls his bonds his grace. His grace. Partakers of my grace. He says, my chain is a grace. My prison is a grace. My suffering is a grace. And he gives many reasons in the book of Philippians why it's a grace. And certainly one of them is, in my bonds, I've suffered with you. And my love and my affection has grown so strong with you, brother and sister. And therefore my joy has exploded. And you know that. Wife or husband, you've suffered together, you've gone through something difficult together, you know that that suffering has caused your love to grow, has caused your affection to grow. I, I once met somebody in downtown Greenville. We were having a meeting outside and they had a very, very sick child that was laid out in a wheelchair. And I remember meeting them and he was probably 20-something years old. And the husband said to me, the man said to me, excuse me, he said, oh, it's just been the most amazing blessing. You have no idea what this has done for my marriage. He said, you have no idea what this sick child has done to transform my marriage because it brought my wife and I close together because we suffered together. And that will produce affection. So far from seeing suffering in a body or in a home as something to be rejected, embrace that that God has sovereignly allowed because through that our love will grow and then our joy will grow. Paul calls it my grace. And I do want to make one note here as well. This was an evidence of, their, of the truth of their salvation. Perseverance through trials is one of the greatest evidences of salvation. And this brings joy to your heart, believer, because when you go through a trial and everything is taken from you and you're at your last rope and you still hold to Jesus and you get through on the other side, you can look back and say, oh, that's wonderful because that means Jesus held to me. Because I would never have held on to Him if it was just me. I would have let go a long time ago. But I look back and I say, I can't believe how I was able to persevere through that trial. It must be because Jesus is holding to me. Perseverance through trials gives us great joy because we see the evidence of God's work in us. He's working in me. He's working in you. And like Paul said, hey, it's meat for you to think this. And believer of yourself. Some believers say, I don't know if I'm saved. I just don't know if I'm saved. Oh, and they've gone through trial after trial after trial after trial. They've seen God provide and answer prayer time and time and time again. And they've seen all of this God working in their life. And they'll turn their back on all of it and say, I just don't think I'm saved. God has met you time and time and time again and brought you through trial after trial after trial after trial. Brother or sister, 
It is meat for you to think this of yourself. And if there is anyone in here as well that is dealing with a trial, know that one way, and this is a sad thing, but one way God will burn away the chaff is through the fire of affliction, through the fire of trial. And you'll see sometimes people who make a profession of faith. But when, when a really hard time comes, when a crisis happens, when suffering happens, they say, I can't handle this, I'm done. I know people personally. I know people, that are, I know people personally right now that are mad at God. Not here, in different places. I know that are mad at God because of things that have happened in their life. And they once made a profession of saving faith and now they have denied Christ because of some trial. Totally different responses. And the only reason for the difference is one person had the grace of God in them and the other didn't. But then the second thing Paul says is in the defense of the gospel. The word defense is translated from the Greek word apologia from which we get the word apologetics. Peter uses this word in 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer or an apologia to every man that asks you of a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Paul says, the defense of the gospel. The defense of the gospel. The gospel, of course, refers to the person and work of Christ, but no doubt it takes within its compass all of Christian revelation. And Paul is saying, I defend the gospel. That was something that, 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 that was one of the marks of the Apostle Paul's ministry. He was a defender of the gospel. And we learn from this that there is a biblical warrant to defend the gospel. To defend it. It's not enough to just, to just preach it, set it out there, but we are also called to defend the gospel to give an apologia, to give an answer to them that ask a reason of the hope that lies within you. We must be ready to defend the gospel. Sometimes when we talk about the world being blind and unable to understand the gospel, we can swing the pendulum so far that we almost begin to say that any kind of defense of the gospel is unnecessary. We just preach the gospel and if people get saved, the Lord works. But I, it's not my responsibility to defend anything. I don't need to defend that Christ is the Messiah. I don't need to defend the fact that the Bible's inspired as we looked at this morning. I don't need to defend any of that. They're blind and they can't see. And when they see, they'll see. When they get it, they'll get it. But it is our responsibility to defend it. Now God will use our defense and we know that regeneration is only a work of the Spirit of God, but God will use our defense. And we're to defend it. Let me just ask, do we know our Bible well enough to defend it against a Jehovah's Witness? To defend the gospel against a Roman Catholic? To defend the gospel against a Jew? To defend the gospel against a liberal? We're called to defend the gospel. We're called to stand and defend it. To defend it. To defend it against the attacks on the Bible. We're called to defend Genesis when people attack Genesis and say that Genesis 1 through 11 or whatever is just um, an allegorical statement. It's mythical. This isn't an actual creation account. We're called to defend the Bible. We're called to defend the gospel. 
When people say that, you know, you really don't need faith alone to be saved. We're called to defend that against people who would teach baptismal regeneration. We're called to defend the gospel, to defend the word of God. But we can't defend the word of God if we don't know the word of God. Paul's ministry was to defend the gospel. And their affection grew as they together bore the shame and reproach of what it was to stand against error and stand for the word of God. And that will also produce affection and love among the brethren. When they stand together, when people don't want anything to do with them, but they stand together and they say, we will defend the gospel together. That produces love in a church and affection. The third thing Paul says, and lastly he says, the confirmation of the gospel. This is simply the preaching of the gospel. 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, Paul says, Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. We are called to preach the word. You defend the word, but then you preach the word. And we are called to proclaim the gospel. Sin might be offensive, but we are called to proclaim that sin is sin. It might be offensive when perhaps a nation like ours has called what the Bible calls sin, has called it not only not sin, but something to be celebrated as moral and noble. We are to call it sin. We are to preach the word of God, every single line of this book, no matter who it offends. We're not to preach offensively. If our manner in preaching is offensive, that's not right. But if the word offends, then let it offend. We're to preach every single book of the Bible, every single verse of this book, and unleash all of God's truth and proclaim everything that the Bible says, not to leave anything out. Not one thing. We're to proclaim everything. And we're to preach the gospel as an exclusive gospel that only through Jesus Christ can a man be saved. We're to preach an exclusive gospel of a Savior who was bloodied on a tree and through the blood atonement of Christ made a way for sinners to be reconciled with God. We're to proclaim a risen Christ who literally, bodily, physically rose up from the grave on a historical day in history and ascended at the right hand of the Father were to proclaim the gospel in all of its truth. And when a body or an individual, body together, individuals themselves, proclaim the gospel, I can guarantee you that that proclamation of the gospel and standing for Christ will grow affection, will grow love in a body. It will grow love. I'm sure that um, our brother could tell you of the early days in the free church when there was just this, this constant attack on the word, constant attack on the gospel, and standing together, defending the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, produced a great closeness and affection among the brethren. And that's not me saying it, that's the word of God saying it. That's what will produce this kind of affection in a church. The gospel is Paul's business. He lived, he died to preach this gospel. So, we close with just this thought. Joy in the church 
joy in the church. It is produced by thankfulness for the church, praying for the church. It is produced by working together with the church, being confident in God's work in the church, and affection in the church, for the church. That will produce great joy. And Lord willing, next week we will look at Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 11. Let's end in a word of prayer this morning. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the Bible, which is the Word of God, and for the great and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been given unto us, that we might be the stewards of it. Father, we pray that our love might abound more and more, that our love for our brothers, for our sisters, would grow. Lord, enable us through suffering, through bonds, through defense, and preaching the gospel to grow in love and joy, that Christ might receive honor and glory in the church forever and ever. Amen.